Okay, this episode is one of those frequent excursions outside my comfort zone where I mostly just try not to sound too stupid. I'm delighted to bring you this conversation with Eddie Truel, in which he very politely makes some pretty punchy observations about regulatory policy on DB scheme consolidation and LDI investment strategies. We also get into some fairly controversial territory on public sector pension funding and on pension tax policy. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Eddie Trull, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for talking to me today. I know in some parts of the industry, you're extremely well known and you've got quite a high profile, but certainly there'll be some people listening to this podcast who probably haven't come across your work because you certainly focus very much on the, on the DB end of the pensions world. So probably a good place to start is just a quick introduction. Tell us about Eddie Trull and give us a quick quick history of what you've been up to. Well, thank you very much indeed, Tom, for the opportunity to, uh, to make a podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm an industry veteran, if you want to be nice to me, or pretty old if you don't want to be nice to me. I had a, a long career in private equity and private debt management and then sold everything in the beginning of 2007, still pleased about that, and moved to co-found the Pension Insurance Corporation with my late brother, Danny. As the name suggested, that was in the business of insuring final salary DB pension funds. We set up a brand new insurer, which was quite an undertaking, raised a lot of backstop capital, over £900 million of backstop equity, and got to work. I built that up over about six years as chief executive before handing over to the excellent John Coomber, ex of Swiss Re. And at that point, I moved on to the London Pension Fund Authority, where I was chairman, and we absolutely transformed the LPFA. We did then the first public sector merger between London and Lancashire's pension scheme, and also spent a lot of time really as the architects of the consolidation of the LGP assets, of which there were 89 different, uh, different pension schemes, into seven super pools. And then on the back of that, seems like a lifetime ago, the then pensions minister asked Luke and myself to set up Pension I'm Super Fund. Sorry, Eddie, which, which pensions minister were we talking about at the time? That was Richard Harrington. Who was only with us for um, a year or two. So that was, he was quite short, short in post, but it, I think this was December 2016 or thereabouts. Luke and I had done some pro bono work trying to sort out British Steel. And indeed, I think we probably still need to do some pro bono work sorting out the, the hapless British Steel pensioners. But on the back of that, he said, look, there must be a better way of bringing consolidation benefits to the corporate final salary pension funds. Could you think the unthinkable and see what you could come up with? And that was the genesis of the super fund idea. So tell us more about where the super fund has got to now and a bit more about, um, I'm interested, you know, you talked about the consolidation of the local government pension scheme. So just, just talk a bit more about what that involves and where that's going. Right. So the idea was to consolidate some of the five and a half thousand as then was 5,250 mm -hmm. now defined benefit pension funds held by corporates and create a, a super fund where you pool all of the assets and liabilities, unlike the super pools in the LGPS, both assets and liabilities, because you can make or lose as much money 
managing liabilities as you can managing assets, as I think people are beginning to discover. The benefit of scale also means that you can provide very significant economies of scale in administration. You only need one set of trustees, one set of auditors, actuaries, etc. And also you can command significantly lower or better value for money investment management fees. Pull them all together, put a very strong financial covenant behind it. So rather than relying on a single sponsor, single employer, put a big financial covenant behind the super fund and off you go. And the other aspect that Luke and I were very keen to bring into play was to share outcomes, share investment outperformance with the individual pension members. So that if the pension super fund invests the money and and, and makes a a positive return, then third of that return would be shared with the members each year so that they can hopefully turn on the heating as well as eat. And equally, of course, one has to provide a return to the external capital. International investors are not going to just deploy capital because they want to be charitable. They have to earn a, a reasonable return on it. And of course, it's attractive to to earn a a long-term 50-year stream of cash flows, which won't come out every year, but when when you have some ups, get some uh, some returns in return for putting up billions of pounds of backstop capital. Okay, you sparked a couple of questions. So I just want to come back on one thing you said about the LGPS and just make sure I've got that clear. So that involved merging assets, but not liabilities. Is that right? So it wasn't the construct that I advised government at the time on. My proposal and suggestion was that one merged both sides of the balance sheet. But that was not what was was followed through. And I think the merger of the assets into super pools has actually produced a lot of good outcomes. I think the, the whole system is on track to be saving something like a billion pounds a year of overheads, which is very valuable for the taxpayer. It's also been proven that the one can harness pension savings to build that better, so that billions of pounds have been invested by the super pools into infrastructure and private businesses and so on, creating real returns for the pension fund, but of course, actually investing money into what my term UK PLC. Which is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow as far as policymakers are concerned, isn't it? They keep looking covetously across at those big sums of money in pension schemes and working out how they can divert some of that cash into infrastructure and economic growth and jobs and their political agenda. I don't think it's just the political agenda. I mean, clearly it's good for the economy. And if it's good for the economy and the economy grows as a result of it, then Ultimately, there's going to be more money to support pensions, if nothing else. Certainly what we actually actually did at London was to put about 45% of the total assets into illiquid private markets. Some of the projects we did were local and added a positive local impact as well as uh, earning us a decent return. So if I give you a good example, we actually bought some... Uh, pretty poor land in East London. We had it remediated. We then built about 350 housing units on it, which were then available for rental to the local community. That provided much needed housing in London. It also is producing a five, 6% a year return for the pension fund. So it's a decent real return for the pension fund, whilst at the same time providing a positive impact to the local community. 
Well, we could do with a bit more of that kind of thing. Can I also ask you, you talked about a strong covenant for the super fund. Just talk a bit more about that. What does that look like? So we spent years basically developing the, the framework with the regulator, along with others in the industry. And the regulator published guidelines just over two years ago now, which basically say you have to fund these sort of things, super funds or things that look like super funds, to a, a so-called 99% over five years probability of paying the benefits in full. So that's 99% over five years. The insurance equivalent is 99.5% over one year. And if you do the mathematics, the super fund construct is actually somewhat better funded or more likely to pay out the, the benefits than the insurance equivalent. But uh, I'm not here to sort of compare and contrast regimes. It's, it's designed to be very safe, very solid, very secure, and uh, make sure that um, the pension benefits are paid in full. And, and forgive me, because this is not my home turf. Just talk a little bit sure. more about how does that work? Where does, where does security come from? Is that from just holding surplus capital? Yeah. So let's say you've got 100 in the pension fund, for sake of argument, 100 of liabilities, conservatively calculated. You typically put up, say, another 12 in a buffer fund or backstop capital fund. And then you've got 112 of assets playing against 100 of liabilities. What you then do is is work out a, a conservative investment allocation. So you might put, for sake of argument, 80% into bedrock assets, high-grade bonds, things of that nature. And you might have 20% in long-term assets in the sort of real assets we've been talking about. That 20% is there to provide a return and the 80% is there to make damn sure the pensions get paid. You put all that into, into a model and you work out what the probabilities are of that construct being able to pay the, the pensions in full and that is how you derive your promise of 99% probability over five years. Okay, so you also talked about... Your investors, the providers of capital, looking for a return on their money. Now, arguably, this is this is a drain on returns. This is siphoning off returns which would otherwise go to the scheme members. So what's your counter to that? Why is this still a good thing? Well, if I take the insurance industry, and I know it pretty well, having run hmm. Pension Insurance Corporation, 100% of the surplus goes to the insurance company who make a return on their capital, often a very good return, and pay that out to their shareholders. In this construct, under the Pension Super Fund, only two-thirds of the return would go to the providers of that guarantee, of that backstop capital. Sorry, I'm being a little oversimplistic, but... but no, no, that works for me. The ...providers yeah. of the backstop capital. And one-third of the surplus, the profit, if you want to call it that, goes actually to the members. So for the first time in decades the pensioners might actually get a Christmas bonus or discretionary uplift, whereas that hasn't been the case for, for, for many, many years in the, in the pensions world. And in the insurance world, again, you know, with profits annuities died a long time ago. Mm. Okay. So how is the super fund progressing? I, mean, I, I do understand your question, Tom. Sorry to, sorry to just follow, follow up for a second. I mean, yeah, I, I do get, get this point of, you know, you're profiting from pensions, but... An awful lot of other people 
make 100% of the profits from their activities. So if you take the, the top four consultancies, they made, I understand, something like £1.4 billion of profit last year from providing advice to pension funds. So they're making an awful lot of money out of it. And there's an awful lot of wastage along the way as well. So that if you've got hundreds or thousands of pension funds, each with their own panoply of advisors, then the inefficiencies, as we saw with the LGPS, are enormous. Equally, small pension funds find it difficult to access good investment returns, particularly in private markets. They cannot negotiate their fees down with their their core investment managers and so on. So the investment management industry is making good returns on the back of the myriad of pension funds. But equally, it's incurring a lot of cost servicing a myriad of pension funds rather than just having a handful of counterparties to deal with. So there's a lot of wastage. Some of it goes to profit for other people. There's an awful lot of wastage. And by consolidation, one can reduce that wastage. And ultimately, at the end of the day, particularly if you have this sort of sharing mechanism that we've got, then everybody benefits. Members benefit and obviously investors benefit as well. Okay, which is entirely fair enough. Like a good accountant, more than covering his costs by saving his client tax liabilities. And everybody wins, apart from the taxpayer in my analogy. But no, I think, I think that stands up. So, so just tell me, how is the business doing? Um, it's not really. So we have spent the last five years now or thereabouts in discussions and negotiations with the pensions regulator, with obviously the Department of Work and Pensions, Treasury, all sorts of people. And it has yet to get what the TPR call a positive assessment, or in layman's terms, you know, a driving license. And I contrast that to setting up a brand new insurance company in the form of Pension Insurance Corporation, which took about a year from starting the process to actually getting going. So it's been a very long drawn out process, very expensive and very frustrating for all concerned. And I think actually pretty frustrating and resource draining on the regulator as well as as well as on, on pension super fund. So there haven't been a lot of winners out of this so far. Considerable frustration building up on all sides. So we're seeing various changes of personnel. Charles Council is going to be leaving the pensions regulator soon. Obviously, we have a new Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. We have I think the same pensions minister back again. He's back in the DWP, but at the time of recording, it's not actually been explicitly confirmed that he is back on the pensions beat again. Do you think those those changes will, and I appreciate the pensions regulator, has to be able, free to make its own decisions, notwithstanding the fact that it is answerable to the DWP. Yeah. I think it's interesting Mel Stride going, going there, given his past experience in the Treasury Committee. Do, do you think any of those changes will make a difference? It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I think... We've, we've had a lot of encouragement from Guy Opperman, whether he's back in or not back in, who knows. But anyway, we had a lot of encouragement from Guy, who, who very much felt that super funds was, was something that he would like to see happen. The regulator has been very robust that you're the politicians and we're the regulators, if you see what I mean. Whilst at the same time, I think it's one of their strategic aims to, to get super funds over the line. The one that they have given a positive assessment to or phase one assessment to called Clara uh, has not yet done any transactions 
That, I think, is because it's a very different model. It's essentially a bridge to insurance buyout rather than a long-term safe and secure home for pensions. It also doesn't have the benefit, as I understand their business model, of consolidation in that they continue to run each fund that they take on as a, a segregated, separate silo within their operation. So very different business model, arguably easy to regulate because you're just looking at one, one thing at a time. But I know that the TPR has put an enormous amount of effort into to finding the right solution for pension super fund. And yet it's coming up against some quite conflicting objectives. It's a pensions regulator. It's not an insurance regulator. It's not the PRA. And the whole construct of British pensions is to put the trustees in charge. And generally speaking, the trustees have got a pretty unfettered, to use the term, ability to invest money as they see fit or not invest as they see fit and to to sort of run the show. And they tend then to lean on an awful lot of advisors to tell them everything that they sort of need to know rather than being highly resourced in a Canadian pension plan way or a BT pension plan way, where you've got a whole executive team there at the the trustees beck and call. So you've got this sort of trustee responsibility, but outsourced and reliant on advice. And that is the model that the UK has developed. And that is the model that the TPR regulates. Where a super fund perhaps is at odds, at conflict with that model, is that the providers of capital, and I count myself amongst them, want to be sure that actually the trustees are going to be thoughtful, that they're going to continue to sort of create an asset allocation, if I can just focus on that, that is in line with our original expectations. So one of the risks one might have would be for them to be what my term, prudently reckless, and just decide to put all the money into gilts and have an easy life. At which point, neither the investors nor indeed the pension members would ever make any any surplus return. So we've developed a, a careful construct with the trustees, but equally I can see that the regulator wants the trustees to have unfettered control over that. And in some ways that can lead to a degree of trustee overreach where they are looking to control not just the pension fund, but also the backstop capital. And then that creates resourcing issues, legal issues, and so on for the trustees. So these objectives are not easy to reconcile. I have quite a lot of sympathy for the regulator in in trying to reconcile them. Okay, but coming back to the point you made earlier, you know, Guy, I'm not surprised to hear, was sympathetic. We have got too many pension schemes here in the UK, as you mentioned earlier, though over 5,000 of them. So consolidation, that is a desirable outcome. So how optimistic are you that that things will move forward from here? It's desirable also for the poor, long-suffering corporates, some of whom had to emergency fund their pension schemes last month in the LDI crisis, and who collectively have put in something of the order of £263 billion of so-called special contributions to top up their pension funds over the last decade and haven't seen much for it. So the corporates are diverting scarce resources and cash into their pension funds rather than, you know, coming up with the next technology, 
innovation or investing into building jet engines or whatever it might be. On that point, you know, when people talk about the poor productivity of UK PLC, that drain on R&D and investment capital and, and corporate growth, that is a factor there, isn't it? I think it's a massive factor. I mean, think what you could do with £260 billion of long-term capital in the UK corporate world. Think also about the fact that the pension funds over the last 15 years have been pushed, in some cases very hard, in selling down equities, selling down out of real assets and investing into essentially gilts or, as we've just seen, some leveraged version of gilts. And that has meant that the cost of equity capital for UK corporates has risen very, very significantly. We're talking about something like seven or eight hundred billion pounds worth of divestment by pension funds. And so the cost of capital for UK corporates is higher and the actual money they have to invest is much, much lower. So I think those factors mean that UK corporate performance and productivity, as you just said, has been fighting against a pretty strong headwind over the last 10, 15 years. That must be a factor. That's really interesting. Thank you for that. And you touched on LDI, and, and I hesitate to go down this rabbit hole because we may never come out again. But uh, I'm just interested to get your take on, on everything that happened over the last month following the mini-budgets. And I appreciate bond yields were rising anyway, and then things kicked off and got a bit crazy following the mini-budget. I'd be interested to get your take on... I mean, it's easy perhaps to point fingers at Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng for, for perhaps being a little bit reckless at a time when rates were rising anyway. But I'm interested in your take on you know the Bank of England and who, who cover themselves with glory, who's got a case to answer for, for perhaps not managing their job well, and, and does that extend to the investment advisors that were running the LDI strategies for the pension schemes in the first place? Gosh, there are an awful lot of targets here, aren't there? Just in terms of the, the crisis itself, my personal view is that that was triggered not by many budgets, convenience as that may be politically, but actually by the Bank of England moving from a decade or more of quantitative easing to declaring mm. that it wanted to go into quantitative tightening to help fight inflation. But well, hang on, Eddie, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you really early on, just briefly. They had to do that sooner or later, didn't they? That was always going to happen. They certainly did. But that was the, it, was, it was a very unfortunate coincidence of timing where both things happened simultaneously. So you had the Bank of England basically saying we're going to actually sell down 80 plus billion of gilts at the same time as the Chancellor Quasi said, oh, I need to raise another 60 billion pounds or whatever it was of government money at the same time. So if you're looking at the gilt market as a gilt market investor, you know, you've suddenly got another 140, 50 billion pounds of issuance. Or, or supply, and not surprisingly, the price starts to change in the wrong direction and fell very, very sharply. And indeed, if you look at a chart of the, uh, the long-dated sort of 2068, for example, it's gone from sort of 200 to about 55, and I mean, it's bounced back a bit since, but, you know, it looked like some aim-listed gold exploration stock rather than a supposedly safe asset. What you then have is compounding doom loop in the system, whereby the pension funds have gone into these so-called LDI products, which were essentially a leverage bet on the price of the gilts. 
And, you know, it's just like in household terms of mortgage. I mean, if, if, if you buy a house for 100 and borrow 80, you know, if, if the price falls from, from 100 to 70, oh dear, you've got more mortgage than you've got asset. Probably stretching the analogy a bit too far, but you can see why that caused real problems. The problems were then exacerbated by something that had actually been driven by regulators, driven by in particular EOPA, which was to force the pension funds into but, sort of exchange traded uh, hedges. Sorry, Eddie, I'm going to briefly interrupt you there. So I over being the European pay- regulator, right? Sorry. It is indeed. Sorry, Tom. I was being uh, diving into pension jargon as usual, Swahili rather than English. And the regulators have pushed all the pension funds uh, onto these products where you had to post cash collateral. So if I take my mortgage analogy, okay, your house has fallen from 100 to 70. You don't have in a mortgage to suddenly put up another 10 in cash because it's a long-term product. If you're doing it in this very, very short-termist 24-hour turnaround way, you have to put up that 10 immediately in cash. And so the pension funds had to sell anything they could sell to put that 10 in in cash. And therefore, of course, they sold the assets they could most easily sell, the price of those assets fell, and then the house was no longer worth 70, it was suddenly worth 60, so they had to put up another 10 of cash, and so you get on. And that's why you get into this absolute doom loop. And we're talking vast amounts of money, probably of the order of one and a half trillion pounds was affected by this. So that's why the bank had to step in it was just like 2008, it had to step in and stop systemic collapse because it was beginning to infect all sorts of other things as well. And so that was the catastrophe, as you might say, the crisis, but it had been building up for 15 years. It had been building up for 15 years because the pension funds were coming under, had come under a lot of pressure from regulators to invest into what were supposedly safe assets even though those assets, gilts, were losing money every day in real terms. Because the banks had, the central banks had depressed interest rates, quantitative easing, the interest rate was yielding less than the rate of inflation. So that basically if a pension fund, which has to pay out inflation-linked pensions, is investing into something that yields less than inflation, returns less than inflation, then they lose money in real terms. And yet they were being forced into this because it was supposedly safe. And so this was, and I publicly was quoted on this about 10 years ago, this was safely guaranteeing the bankruptcy of the pension system. And indeed it has turned out to safely guarantee the bankruptcy of the pension system. Other countries, if I can take some international examples, realize that this wasn't a very clever way of doing things. If we take, for example, the Canadian pension plans, the Canadian government 20, 25 years ago actually issued gilts, put the money into the Canadian pension plan, encouraged other Canadian pensions to do the same, consolidated, very efficient, very well run. And they then put a lot of that money into productive real assets. So people like CPP, the Canadian pension plan, people like the Ontario Municipal OMAS pension fund have put a lot of money into infrastructure and other things like that. And they have managed to make double digit percentage returns per annum over 20 years in those real assets. And so they've actually 
much, much more than filled in the hole. They started to make real returns that enabled the Canadian taxpayer to basically over time get off the hook. And so they've done that in their public sector. Yet, unfortunately, in the, in the UK, in the private sector, all the sort of policy pressure, regulatory pressure was to go the other way uh, and to invest into these negative, negative real yield assets. So you're pointing to a fairly fundamental failure of regulatory strategy there. I mean, I'm interested in the fact that, you know, when you listen to Guy Opperman, who's presumably back on pensions minister beat again, you know, if you ask him about defined contribution pensions, he will always point to Australia. Um, what I'm hearing from you is that when it comes to DB strategy, we should be looking in the other direction and westward across the, to, to the North Atlantic to Canada. I think we should look to Canada. Sorry, I'm on, on, on an OECD long-term investment thing, so I, I get some useful insights from that. But uh, the Dutch have also done very well with this sort of strategy. And then some smaller countries like uh, Finland, for example, has done very well with this, with this long-term strategy. And it's the difference between being short-termist and long-termist. So particularly during the financial crash, 2007, 8, 9, people were very worried that their assets had gone down 30, 40%. I mean, wouldn't you be? But they overreacted in policy terms, create what they thought were short-term safety at the expense of long-term safety, indeed long-term return. So if you look at a portfolio of, let's just take 100% public equities on the one hand, or a portfolio of 100% government bonds on the other hand, and you look at all the sequence of returns over the last 50 years, like a pension fund has to, every single time a portfolio of 100% equities provides better pension outcomes than a portfolio of 100% government bonds, every single time. And so even though the equities may go up and down, over the life of a pension fund, that ups and downs don't matter because in the long term, the equities produce a better outcome. Basically, they tend to grow with more or less GDP and they pay a dividend yield along the way, whereas the government bonds from time to time go down very sharply. They never can go up. If you issue a bond at 100, the most you're ever going to get back is 100. And from time to time, governments default or devalue the currency by inflation or whatever it may be. And that principle holds true even if you've got a closed scheme with shrinking membership and negative cash flow? Yes. I think if you've got a, you know, if you've got a closed mature scheme where you're paying out more than you get in, you've still got quite a long-term horizon. And you clearly need to make sure that you do have enough cash on hand to actually pay the next few years of pensions. And you're not forced to sell assets to pay pensions. That's never very clever. But nonetheless, even with a a mature pension fund, you've probably still got an average life of 10 or 15 years to go. And indeed, some of your members are still going to be around in 30 years' time. And it still makes sense to have a significant portfolio of particularly long-term private assets that in many cases do actually pay quite a good dividend and give you the prospect of protecting your asset base against inflation. And those two things provide better cash flows in the short term, and they provide better long-term protection of the pension fund. Okay. Thank you for all of that. I just want to round up by touching on pension taxation, which is something you and I spoke about before. And at the time 
you were particularly exercised about the impact on on doctors of the current regime, annual allowance, lifetime allowance, either or, they can work in combination, acting as a deterrent for the employment of doctors and the negative impact on the NHS. More broadly, I think we both agree that the current pension tax relief system is a pretty flawed model. So the world's moved on a bit since we spoke. It was it was a couple of months ago we last had that conversation. I'd be interested in your thoughts now on that question of the NHS scheme and, and taxation there. And more broadly, you know, we're looking ahead to a mini budget and possibly Jeremy Hunt's going to get his axe out. So your thoughts on where we could go with pension taxation? Well, first of all, Tom, I'd, I'd challenge you to uh, claim that you actually understood how it all worked because i supposedly a pensions expert and it is the most Byzantine set of rules and regulations. Frankly, the, the average person in the street hasn't a hope of understanding it. And even if they did, they've got better things to do than spend hours and hours and hours trying to work out what the taper relief is on their annual lifetime allowance and all this sort of stuff. It's just 100% agree with that. So simplification, number one. Number two, it is intergenerationally very unfair. You've got a whole generation of pensioners enjoying who have enjoyed very favorable tax treatment you've got predominantly public sector workers continuing to enjoy very very expensive uh, defined benefit pensions whereas actually the generality of, of people in this country cannot afford to invest enough into their defined contribution pension to be able to pay themselves the same sort of levels of pensions as everybody else is getting nor indeed, even if they try, are they allowed to, because you have things like the so-called lifetime allowance, which means you can only build a pension pot of a certain size. A lot of people are getting tax relief on pensions, not just tax relief on their contributions, but tax relief in particular on the way that they continue to build up benefits in these old style defined benefit plans. And that benefit that they're building up is worth between a half and three quarters of their entire pay. And they're getting that tax-free. So that the implications of that are that this is incredibly expensive for the government. The total cost of that is not far off the total tax take from national insurance contributions or before they put up the rate. And it's an incredibly inefficient use of taxpayers' money, if I could put it like that, to gold plate a relatively small number of people at the great expense of everybody else. Eddie, before you go on, let me challenge you briefly on the half to three quarters. Now, members of the police force, perhaps, members of the judiciary, more generally across the public sector, that feels like quite a high number. I mean, if you'd said 30% or even 40%, I'd have agreed with you. 50 to 75% seems a bit high. I did the numbers for the NHS back off the last lot of data that I've got in any detail. And it was 72% of payroll was the total cost of the NHS pension fund. Now, obviously, that conceals some very high earners uh, and an enormous number of less high earners. But it was about a 72% cost. That was for, for the 2020 year. I don't have the 21 numbers yet. Okay. I mean, if you're right, and as I say, I think others would challenge on that number. I mean, it's clearly a big number. And, and perhaps you're right. Perhaps it is as high as 70%. That is unrecognised, the put assessment some, of people. Let me put some hard numbers on the... Go on. Yeah, let me put some hard numbers on the NHS. So the cash cost, the net cash cost to the NHS of pensions, 
is running around around about twenty eight billion pounds a year. So they, they get some contributions in, but the net cost is about twenty eight billion. Over the last five years or so, the liability, the hole has kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger, even though they're putting twenty eight billion pounds of cash in. And let's put that in context. That's about a fifth of the entire NHS budget. It's unfunded. There are no assets in the NHS pension fund. And yet the total liability is of the order of one trillion pounds. So that only putting in 28 billion doesn't start to fill the hole in. And that hole therefore grows, depends on interest rates and all the other factors. But in the year I studied, it went up by 104 billion pounds. That's a liability that's got to be paid by future generations. And so it's an enormous black hole that continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And fiddling around with annual allowances and things isn't going to make any difference. Can I, can I just do, challenge you again on that? Because those numbers are baked yeah. in. I mean, those are promises that are already made. You can't expect the government to renege on those promises, those existing liabilities, can you? I wouldn't expect them to renege on their existing liabilities. What I would suggest is two things. First, you can stop the hole getting bigger. So... If you were to close the fund to new entrants, but particularly to close it to future accrual, i.e. giving more and more benefits to the existing people that are in the scheme, and move everybody onto a defined contribution pension in the same way as the vast majority of private sector companies have done, then you could at least stop the hole getting bigger. What would that also do is if you also were to free up pension savers throughout the country from all these Byzantine rules, then you stop the situation where, for example, I know of an accident emergency doctor, young chap. He had two people dying in front of him simultaneously. He rang his consultant up, said, I need you, you know, now to come and help me save lives. Consultant said, I'd have to pay £60,000 of pension tax bill if I came into the hospital. I'm sorry, sorry, son, you know, just, just carry on as best you can. Both people died, I hasten to add. Now, that is a real-life impact of the Byzantine pension tax rules, which I find scandalous. Secondly, in terms of, of, of taxpayer money, is this really a great use of taxpayers' money to pay hundreds of billions of pounds, or create hundreds of billions of pounds of liabilities to gold plate one section of the community against, against everybody else? Sorry if this sounds a bit emotional, but I, I find it rather, um, rather disappointing. I think... There are many who listen to this podcast. You know, there are certainly some listening to this podcast who will argue that that guaranteed pension is part of the it's part of the deal of working in the public sector, where typically people have much longer working careers, probably earn a bit less than in the private sector, and that's just the deal. It's the way it's always been, and you know we shouldn't we shouldn't mess with that. I'm sure there are many listening to this podcast equally who will say, well, yeah, we work in the private sector, we have DC pensions, we think it's we agree with you, Eddie. It's, it's unfair. There are two things here. I mean, one is politically, it would be massively challenging to move. I mean, we saw what happened when the the coalition government tried to reform public sector pensions. You know, we had a lot of protests then. So very difficult to to fix. You need a lot of political capital. It's probably a fight the current government and probably not the next government either, particularly once to pick. And then also there's still that question of, well, okay, your earlier point around the complexity of the rules, wherever you go from here, it would be great to simplify them. Yeah. To your first point, outside of London, it is different in London than the southeast, but outside of London, 
public sector pay is on average 17% higher than its private sector counterpart. So the public sector is doctors in Wales are actually, relatively speaking, very well paid compared to people with similar skills in the private sector. It's very different in London, I, I do hasten to add, and that's a, that's a different issue for a different time. Whilst this requires a lot of political capital, there is a vast amount of capital to be gained from getting it right. So that instead of the national debt just going up and up and up and up and up as these pension liabilities increase, or indeed real cash coming out of the National Health Service to pay for these unsustainable pension promises, then someone somewhere has to actually grasp the nettle. And if George Osborne had grasped the nettle when I recommended it to him 10 years ago, then you know the hole would be a lot less big. The second aspect of that is that actually there's a very large stock of gilts at the Bank of England, call it 850 billion or thereabouts, may have gone up or down in the last month or two. And if you were to, for example, shift those gilts and put them into the National Health Service Pension Fund, you could then create a properly funded, the equivalent of the Canadian Pension Plan, a properly funded sovereign wealth fund, backstopping the NHS pensions. And what would that achieve? You've then got to, instead of the Bank of England having to sell down those gilts and, and cause problems in interest rate markets, you could actually put the money to good use, uh, as we were describing earlier, investing into productive things. Secondly, you would save the NHS 28 billion pounds of cash a year, which is well worth having. Thirdly, if I was an NHS pensions member, I'd be really worried that in 30, 40, 50 years time, the money is actually going to be there to pay this lovely pensions promise. It's all very well having a gold-plated pension where you're promised uh, inflationary benefit plus one and a half percent a year. That's great. I mean, I have it all day long, but will the money actually be there in 40 years time to pay me that pension? I sincerely doubt because it's just unaffordable. So that actually you're doing the members of the NHS Pension Fund a favor as well by actually giving them a sustainable pension rather than just a, a promise on the never-never. Okay, I think the NHS members okay, probably don't even consider that that's a thing they should be worried about right now. As far as they're concerned, they've got a guaranteed pension and, and it will get paid. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but if you open that can of worms politically... You're, you're having an awkward conversation with people who didn't even think they had to have an awkward conversation. I just want to come back on the Bank of England thing, and I'm forgive me because I struggle to get my head around this. I mean, we're definitely beyond my pay grade here. But if you take that money out of the Bank of England and you stick it into the NHS pension scheme, effectively you're reversing it into the real economy. Surely that would be inflationary. Surely that would cause a, a massive spike in inflation. Two thoughts. So firstly, if you save the NHS... You know, if the, if the earnings from the stock of gilts and, and investments you make save the NHS £28 billion a year of cash, then that's good for, for government finances. Yep. In terms of the way you put the money to work, clearly if you are investing into long-term assets such as new energy uh, infrastructure or things of that nature, then you're actually investing in the productive economy. And yes, in, in today's tight labor markets, you know, big infrastructure projects, of course, create a lot of jobs and so on. But at least people are doing something productive and useful. But importantly, you're renewing Britain's infrastructure. And that would be one area I particularly encourage investment to be made. And there's hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds of infrastructure that needs renewing. 
So, for example, a national grid have announced a £54 billion programme to renew renew the grid, basically. You know, that's, that's £54 billion straight off the top. And we can think of plenty of other similarly large investments that need to be made, not least to finance this entire transition that I think is very, very needed from fossil fuels to cleaner energy. Yeah, and energy security is no definitely front of mind. Yeah, it's all very well saying, you know, oh, we're not going to have any more petrol cars, diesel cars. Fascinating. But no one's thought about the massive increase in electrical generation that's needed, let alone the distribution of that electricity to millions of charging points. And so lovely big policy initiatives, love it. But no one's thought about how we actually invest and how we actually deliver on those policy objectives. Well, yeah, and why worry about that when you can just glue yourself to the road or throw some paint over a piece of art? Eh? Sorry, I've, forgive me for bringing that into the conversation. We probably shouldn't go there. Okay, so look, we've well, got I know, a... I know it's one of your, your topics as well, so yeah. <laughs> so look, we've got a new Secretary of State at the DWP. We've got all change in, in, in government. You know, perhaps this is a propitious moment to... You talked about having had that conversation with George Osborne 10 years ago. Uh, it might be a good moment to, to to revisit the current government and see see whether they're in listening mode. I would really hope so, because it needs joined up government to make it happen. It's not just Treasury or just Health Service or just whatever, uh, DWP. It needs all of them to get together and say, right, how are we going to fix this system? Whether it be the tax structure, whether it be the, the short-termist sort of dash for safety or perceived safety, whether it be risk-based regulation, where actually, you know, regulators are given the air cover and they need the air cover. The DWP launched a consultation on super funds to go full circle nearly four years ago. It has still to respond. If you're a regulator, what the hell are you meant to do? They don't know what the government actually wants them to do. They haven't got a legislative framework to operate against. So they're having to try and scatter around in the dark, create guidelines and things like that. That is not fair on the regulator. I know you might not expect me to say that, but it's not fair on the regulator to have them sort of try to make guesses as to what the the government actually wants them to do or not to do. No, I absolutely agree with that. I hope they're in listening mode now. Conscious, we've been talking for nearly an hour, so let's let's wrap it up there. It's been really good to talk to you. It's definitely outside my comfort zone, so thank you for being patient with me. Really interesting chat. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. And uh, I'm sure some people think I've oversimplified some things, but I've been trying to trying to do it in a uh, understandable manner. And I've really appreciated this opportunity. So thank you for that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.